as the teachings of the Buddha traveled from his birthplace, India, to other parts of the world, they met the local indigenous culture and prevailing religion at the time. So when the teachings made their way to Tibet, they met the Bon religion of an agrarian society. And when they traveled to China, they met the teachings of Confucius in that society and in Japan and elsewhere. And so now we have the teachings of the Buddha coming to us in the West from many different cultural representations or cultural manifestations of the teachings. And so we have Tibetan Lamas and Thai Ajans and Burmese Sayadaws and Japanese Zen Masters and from the appearance, behavior, and certainly teachings, they can look very different. But there's one teaching, well, there are many teachings, but there's the main teaching upon which all traditions and sects of the Buddha's teaching rest on is the Buddha's teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And so as we here in the West in this first generation of converting Buddhists or Buddhist converts, <clears throat> we should take a look at the uncultured or unburdened with culture teachings of the Buddha to see really what is the essence of the teachings and how can we practice in a way to realize them in the context of our own time and life and lifestyle. The teachings on the Four Noble Truths are very common and, and if you've practiced at all, you've heard a talk or you've read about the Four Noble Truths, so <clears throat> you may hear nothing new this evening. But when I first started practicing and I heard the discourse on the Four Noble Truths, this was 35 years ago or so, the first Noble Truth was translated as life is suffering. Well, I was in my early 20s and I was full of it and full of myself and I had my whole life ahead of me and I was pretty energetic and I went to my first retreat quite accidentally, set up back, leans against the piano because my body was in excruciating pain. My mind was all over the place. I didn't know what I was doing there, but I wasn't suffering. <laughs> it wasn't until eight years later when I finally ended up in Burma listening to Saito Upandita's translator translate the word dukkha as the oppressive nature of phenomena. Oh, then I begin to get it. Oh, the oppressive nature of phenomena? I, I know that. What this showed me, or what that revealed to me, is how difficult it is to get truly what the Buddha's pointing to from single words or inaccurate translations. In my early 20s, if I acknowledged that life was suffering, to me that would have meant that I was a failure. And 
That's not a good way to start on a path of practice. You're a failure, good luck. (laughs) The teachings of the Buddha can be heard and taken in and recognized at many different uh, levels of the mind. So the first noble truth is this truth of dukkha. What does dukkha mean? Well, the first meaning of dukkha is pain, physical pain, mental pain. Now, we've all felt some physical pain probably today. I mean, it's pretty common. There's the pain of just, you know, growing, slamming your finger in the door, you know, toothache, headache, feeling hungry, feeling overfull, feeling sleepy. And all of the aches and pains of aging along with those of, you know, disease and, well, if you have a human body, you know the experience of pain. It's no secret. It also means the obvious mental pain the emotional or mental pain of loneliness or fear or anger, depression, anxiety, jealousy, envy, feeling isolated, alienated, betrayed. And that list is endless. And we also know all of that. In fact, all of us have experienced all of those emotional, mental sufferings at one time or another, and many physical sufferings. So it's no secret, this truth of dukkha, that there is pain in life. It is so obvious that it's called dukkha dukkha. But there's a second meaning of the word dukkha, which is a little less obvious, but no less important. And it refers to the fact that everything changes. And because everything changes, the conditions that we have accumulated to support our life, to make our life secure, to make us happy, to make us healthy, to help keep us stable and in reliable relationships and uh, you know, a plan for the future. All of the conditions that we have accumulated in our life and acquired or are seeking to accumulate and acquire are unpredictably but inevitably changeable. Well, this means that we are forever insecure. We may be experiencing bountiful, healthy conditions right now. We're all here, we have some discretionary time, some discretionary finances, some some interest uh, and some discretionary energy, and we can do this. But we all know that conditions can change for any one of us very, very quickly. And the security, the happiness, the sense of uh, safety that we feel in our life can vanish instantly. Any one of us could go to our annual physical exam next week and get a diagnosis that changes our view of the future forever. And we can't prevent that. It's, it happens every day. It could be our turn anytime. And so we live with this 
Well, insecurity. We do everything we can to try to kind of keep it out of sight and patch together as much security and as much stability as we can, but nevertheless, just on the periphery of our vision is this knowledge that we are not very secure. And so we live with a level of insecurity and tentativeness due to the change, changeability of conditions. Well, this is not satisfactory. The not satisfactoriness of it is dukkha. Right now, we could say, no pain, but because pain, uh, no painful conditions change, Well, we could say that dukkha is hidden in pleasant conditions. <laughs> we often miss what the Buddha was pointing to with this understanding of dukkha because we personalize our insecurity. We think it's, it's just me who feels insecure. It's just me who is a little tentative, a little hesitant about the future. But if I could just get it together, then I really feel secure. And the Buddha said, all beings live with this condition no matter who you look at in this room or outside, lives with this level of insecurity. It isn't a matter of having more money or taking more vitamins or walking further or faster each day or eating organic as opposed to GMO. That's not it. It's like we all live with this condition. But when we personalize it, like it's my condition, my personal limited condition, then we miss the significance, really, of what the Buddha's pointing to. There's a third meaning of the word dukkha, or there's a third area of life that the word dukkha refers to. And there are two, two views of it. There's the macro view and the micro view. And the macro view says we're born and our parents and other primary caregivers doing the best they can provide for us in those early years. They feed us clothe us, bathe us, love us, educate us, train us, poop us, burp us, <laughs> do whatever they got to do to try to keep us happy. Because if we're not happy, they're going to have a hard time being happy. And as soon as they can, they entrain grandparents and neighbors and peers and siblings to help carry the burden. And gradually, over the course of a dozen years or so, we learn the routine, and at some point, we're kind of, we get the message, you're on your own. And now we, each one of us, has the responsibility of taking care of this body and this mind. And so every day, we have to get up, bathe, groom, dress a few times, eat, get rid of the eating, clean up, just to take care of the body. And, you know, if you don't take care of the body, you know, imagine, you just say, oh, to heck with it, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to bother brushing my teeth, combing my hairs, or bathing. Well, it wouldn't take long before you'd have some real dukkha. <laughs> you know, and we have to do that. 
and we can't get anybody to do it for us for very long. And we have to do it every day. Grooming every part of the body with all, and dressing the body in all its finery to suit the weather. Well, we know it's a burden. We also have to take care of this mind. You know, we have to keep this mind happy, entertained, distracted, uh, filled up, because if we don't keep it happy, if we don't keep it distracted, if we don't keep it busy, if we don't keep it doing something meaningful, valuable, and probably fast, well, it'll be just like being on retreat. <laughs> There's some dukkha. <laughs> and we have to take care of this mind. And we do all kinds of things. Well, think about it. Our whole life is a constant pursuit of activity and people and things and stuff, sights and sounds and smells and odors and tastes, to try to keep this body and this mind happy. Are we there yet? You can't stop. We have to do this every day. And we have to do it, you know, for one, two, three, four, five, six, some of us seven, even eight, decades, every day, you have to take care of it. At the end of which, what happens? Well, <laughs> we just wrap it up in its best set of clothes, put it in a nice shiny box, and put it in a hole in the ground, or put it in the fire. The end. Some would say, bad investment. <laughs> we have to do it. And this is where it's going. <laughs> well, it's pretty clear. If all we're doing is carrying this body and mind as comfortably and as pleasurably as we can to the grave, <laughs> we're wasting our time. We've all sought, pursued, and gained, and experienced, and indulged in a lot of pleasure already. That is not the way to happiness, to satisfaction, to ease and contentment in life. And we know that. But we don't see any other option. That's the macro view. The micro view is we have these six sense doors. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind in the Buddha's understanding. And these six sense doors are being constantly stimulated all the time. You cannot turn off your ears. You cannot turn off feeling sensations in the body from the skin to the interior. You can close your eyes, but you still see visions. And the odors that come, it, when they come, you can't stop them. And these are the easy ones, because the mind is incessant. And it's just going 24-7. Constant contact and stimulation. It's enough to drive you crazy. Well. Look around you. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's clear to see that the world is not that sane. And yet, we have to bear with it. We have to bear with this constant stimulation. And we try to find relief in silence or solitude or uh, the best that you can get, trying to get pleasant sense contact instead of unpleasant, or we drive ourselves to distraction with obsessions, or drink ourselves silly, or stone ourselves on drugs, just to kind of get a little space. 
and well, we have to bear with it. This, the Buddha said, is just oppressive. It's oppressive. This is another meaning or another experience of dukkha. The inescapability of oppressive conditions. We can see that dukkha means pain, physical and mental pain. It means the pain of insecurity and vulnerability. It's the pain of oppression, existential pain, really. Like, what's the other option? Is there any other option? Some would say, yeah, but, you know, I'm happy. I'm, my life's pretty good. And you know what? For all of humanity that has ever lived on the face of the earth, we, all of us in this room, as bad as it is, are living at the top of the heap. We are living as good as it gets. And we still see this is the way it is. Practice like this, paying attention, really looking deeply into the experience of life, is to discover this first noble truth. It has to be discovered, it has to be investigated, because we distract ourselves, and society is quite happy to distract us from seeing and realizing this truth. We can live our whole life and not really open to and accept and acknowledge this is the way it is. And so it takes paying very careful attention as we do here to begin to open to it. And it's not easy, as you know. It's very difficult to really grok uh, what is going on in the mind and the body and just accept that this is the way it is. Practice like this doesn't cause the dukkha. Oh yes, there is some discomfort from just sitting so many hours in an unfamiliar posture. We could say that much. But the dukkha that we discover is far greater than that. We have to see that it's not practice that makes the dukkha happen, but it uncovers or it reveals the dukkha that's already happening. It is already in our life. When we stop and look, we then begin to see it. Some would say, yeah, but it's too painful or it's too terrifying, or why bother? Actually, practice like this is one of the most compassionate things you can do for yourself. Now, we often think of compassion as being the action to address suffering. Well, in fact, that's what practice is. It is addressing by uncovering and really understanding the nature of the suffering that we experience, that we feel. And so while there isn't necessarily an immediate relief of that suffering, it is part of the process of learning how to deal with it or how to address it effectively. If we don't look, we won't see the dukkha. And if we don't see the suffering, we won't do anything to address it or to seek and secure relief from it. Okay. First noble truth, truth of dukkha, is pretty obvious actually. I have a question for you. Now that you know, or have at least heard about dukkha, 
Do you have any dukkha in your life? Okay. Why? Why is it that way? Why do we have to experience all this dukkha? Well, the Buddha, in his investigation of the way things are, also asked this question. And when he realized the answer, he articulated it in the Second Noble Truth, which says that the cause of all this dukkha is craving. Craving in the form of attachment, wanting, clinging, or craving also in the form of aversion, pushing away, preferring other. Now it's clear we're not craving dukkha. And you know, think this through with me. I've had an assumption in my mind throughout much of my life that that says, if I could just get what I want, then I'd be happy. <coughs> Doesn't that sound right? If you could get what you want, wouldn't you be happy? That's an assumption we have, isn't it? I mean, I'm not the only one that thinks like that or thought like that, am I? It seems so intuitively correct. And the Buddha said, no, in fact, it's exactly wrong. It is this craving and seeking and acquiring that is the very source and cause of the dukkha. Well, as one of my law professors used to say, spin that out for me, meaning what? Explain that. Well, it's clear, if we want something, craving, and cannot get it, well, that, that's suffering. That's really pretty obvious. But if we want something, and we do what it takes to get it, why is that suffering? Why is that also dukkha? Well, if whatever you have acquired and are holding on to is alive, like a partner, or a person, a pet, a plant, well, it can get sick and die anytime. <laughs> well, okay. If what you have acquired is valuable, it is liable to be stolen, or you've got to insure it, or you lose it, or the government taxes it, all of which are their own form of dukkha. If what you want and acquire is digital, it'll be outdated in six months. <laughs> if it's some form of contemporary knowledge, it'll be superseded quicker than that. Whatever we have sought and acquired is subject to change. And the happiness and the security and the sense of fulfillment that came with acquiring it goes when that object changes. And so there really is no security in seeking and acquiring anything. Huh. Ouch. You mean all of this mad dash to get and to have and to consume and to become really isn't satisfying in an, in an, in an absolute sense. There's moments of pleasure, for sure. But when does it stop? Some of us have found the Dharma. We've discovered spiritual practice as an alternative thing to seek. <laughs> right? You know, and so we do, we, you know, we, you know, we're going to step off that treadmill of seeking, acquiring, and getting, and having, and becoming, and we're going to go on a retreat. We're going to learn how to let go. But the first thing we've got to do is have a good sitting. Did anybody want a good sitting today? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> well, as one of our students said, there's nothing like a good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> now, <laughs> why? Well, you know, you have a good sitting or you have a part of a good sitting. It's like, wow, it's calm, it's clear, it's comfortable, it's relaxed. You know, the bell rings a little too soon. And you get up and you get up and float out of the hall just thinking, wow, this is the way it's going to be the rest of the retreat. Yeah. And you come back for the next sitting. It's not like that. Our expectations get in the way and, and we don't see that kind of sitting for a couple of days. So even spiritual attainment, not very fulfilling. Not very satisfying, really, when we start. The Buddha said we crave these pleasant sense experiences. It's pretty obvious. But he said we also crave continued existence. Well, let's not get too esoteric. What does that mean? We crave continued existence. Did you have planning mind today? Did you, ever, did you notice you were making some plans for the future? What is making plans for the future, really? It's imagining paradise elsewhere. You know, it's like we're making plans for ourselves. We, we don't make plans for other people like we do for ourselves. We're making plans for ourselves at some point in the future when conditions are going to be better. Right? Do you ever make plans for conditions being worse? Or do you make such extensive plans for others? We're always making plans for our imagined future. We want to continue on this thing. But here we are experiencing the future that we imagined a week ago. Remember a week ago when you were excited about coming to the retreat? You know, here it is. <laughs> you know, are you happy here? <laughs> you know, you know, no, we're already making plans for next week. You know. And when we get to next week, we're going to be making plans for the week after. <laughs> this is called samsara. Continually looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Thinking that it's going to come in the future sometime. That kind of happiness is not coming. We've been, we've been doing this for a long time. Not just this lifetime, if you understand the teachings of the Buddha. Buddha said not only do we crave continued existence, we crave the end of existence. Well, also, what does that mean? Did you have a painful sitting today? Did you have a tormented mind today? <laughs> tormented body? At that time, wasn't the thing that you wanted the most was for it to end? Just get this thing over with. Get me out of here, as we say. You know, I got to get out of this place. I got to get out of this mind state. I got to get out of this body. It's driving me crazy. And we can see that, yeah, we gra we 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 swing from wanting more to wanting less continually. This second noble truth. It's pretty. Pretty revealing, you know, when we can get it that, oh, all of this suffering caused by clinging, craving, wanting, getting, acquiring, having, becoming, being, whether you're successful at it or not. Mm. You know, there's been some recent studies done on uh, happiness. And recent studies show that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it should. <laughs> and what we think will make us really unhappy, or what we imagine will make us really, you know, dissatisfied, doesn't make us as unhappy as we imagined. There was also studies done of lottery winners, as well as those who suffered catastrophic uh, illness or accident. And what they found is that the baseline happiness of those who win the lottery, and in America they have big lotteries, like, you know, multi-millions, you know, enough to set you up for 
well, a year. <laughs> because they find that even lottery winners who can finally pay off their bills, send their kids to college, pay off the house, whatever it is, after a year, their baseline happiness is the same as the day before they won the lottery. No happier. They also found that those who suffered catastrophic illness or accidents, after a year and basically kind of stabilizing in their new condition, their baseline happiness is no different than the day before the accident. Well, the only thing we can conclude from this is that we really don't know what will make us happy. And our, happy, our idea of happiness is independent of conditions. It doesn't matter what's happening. That's not the determinant of whether we'll be happy. It really depends on our mind, our inner relationship to what's happening, which is what we've been paying attention to here. So it's said that the first noble truth of dukkha is to be investigated. The second noble truth of craving, clinging, is to be abandoned. Okay. So, you know, the Buddha's famous teaching on the two noble truths. Truth of dukkha, caused by craving, good luck. What would we do? Luckily for us, the Buddha discovered a third noble truth. Or he continued his investigation as to this condition of dukkha. And he realized that there is an end to dukkha. Now, when we often or usually hear teachings on the third noble truth, we hear teachings on you know, uh, enlightenment and nibbana and getting off the wheel of samsara, and it all seems so far away. It all seems so hypothetical. It seems like it's, well, for other people at other times. And it's really sometimes hard to imagine that the Buddhist teaching on the Third Noble Truth <coughs> is directly observable by what we're doing here today. So I want to speak about the Third Noble Truth, the end of dukkha, in terms of our experiences here today. One way that we experience the end of dukkha is from practicing mindfulness. You may notice sometime today, you're trying to pay attention, you space out for a while, and, and when you come to, you know, your, your, your posture's off and your mind is grappling with some fantasy some fantasy, some memory, some plan, and you realize, I'm holding on here. And we can intentionally let go. And when you let go intentionally of what the mind has been obsessing about, well, there's a moment of relief, right? There's a, we call it a dukkha-free moment. <laughs> it's only a moment, but it is a very noticeable shift from the suffering of clinging and holding to the relief of letting go. But if we don't practice awareness, we won't see the holding. When I, first my, when I did my first retreat, and my first several retreats, it was a couple of years after I got out of university. And in university, I studied engineering at a time when we didn't have handheld calculators. We had slide rules and had to do a tremendous amount of longhand mathematics. And with several advanced math courses, I had years of doing very complex mathematical calculations. So I went on my first retreat. When my mind wandered, you know where my mind wandered to? <laughs> mathematical computations. And I would come to finding myself multiplying out four and five digit numbers 
in my mind trying to like, da -da 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 -da, you know. And I would see this happening and I'd say, do I need to be doing this right now? Phew. <laughs> Thank goodness. I didn't know I was doing that. I didn't know that's what I did with my discretionary time. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. And if you don't pay attention, you won't ever see what your mind is doing. So just in the simplicity of paying attention as we do here, developing awareness, we discover these habits of mind that are chewing up all our discretionary time and energy. And we can let them go. With, in, with just seeing and intending to let go, we let go. And we, have, and we experience that genuine moment of relief. There's another way that we experience temporary end of dukkha here, and it's when, through developing awareness, we see the defilements. We see the mind that's obsessing, craving, or aversion, or it's got stuck in some old memory that's just, you know, you're re-experiencing the jealousy like it was just happening, or whatever, and you see this obsessing mind, and in time, maybe not the first day or the second day of the retreat, but in time, you can begin to, well, just step back from it and see, ah, oh, here's this obsessing, you know, and it's just like, well, it's, it's happening, and you see, oh, this is, this is the nature of jealousy, this is the nature of obsessing, this is the nature of whatever it is, and even in that, well, recognition of the obsessing, there's a sense of relief. It's not that we're entangled in it. We're beginning, when we, when we see and we feel, that we become, that we can disentangle ourselves from it. And when the momentum of awareness is, get some momentum, as most of you are experiencing now, we can have extended periods, a few minutes or, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, of no obsessing. This is a relief. This is different than day one. So we want to be sure to acknowledge that, oh, this is the end of suffering. This is the end of that kind of suffering, at least for a period of time. There's a third way that we experience the relief from dukkha, and that's when, and it may be a little early in the retreat for all of us, but some of us, that's when the seven factors of awakening that Kamala spoke about last night, the three energizing and the three tranquilizing arouse, are, are activated and are in balance. And we come to a very equanimous mind where the mind can be at ease with and not reactive to whatever happens. So, painful, pleasant, physical, mental, emotional stuff happens. When the mind is developed and the seven factors are balanced, it is like we have a refuge we have a refuge from the storms of obsession, from the storms of the defilements, from those visitors to the mind that cause suffering. We kind of insulate ourselves from them because the mind is stable, it's calm, it's energized, it's clear, it sees, it doesn't hang on, it lets go immediately, it's not reactive. This too is an ongoing Dukkha-free zone. It comes. You know, maybe it's not too mature right now or it's not lasting too long, but you'll see more of it as the retreat goes on where the mind is just not obsessing. This is a relief. There's a fourth way that we will see in time the end of Dukkha in our practice here. 
And that is through the development of insight, vipassana knowledge or insight. Vipassana knowledge or Vipassana insights are three. There comes a time when the mindfulness is mature, continuous, strong, and we see the incessant arising and passing away of phenomena. We just see everything that we experience comes into being for a moment and then dissolves, comes into being, dissolves, comes into being, dissolves. Whatever arises, passes away. Whatever thought, feeling, sensation, plan, memory, emotion comes into the mind when seen, or even if not seen, it's only there for a moment and it passes away. The understanding of just how fleeting everything is becomes paramount in the mind. That understanding really arises in the mind strongly. Well, imagine if you really saw everything, every moment of life as being fleeting and impermanent. What would you hold on to? Well, the mind that sees this fleeting nature of everything doesn't reach to hold on to anything. It, does, it isn't as if the mind has got to let go. It doesn't even reach for what it knows isn't there the next moment. So the mind, with this knowledge of impermanence, rests in the ongoing awareness of changing phenomena. It doesn't reach for anything. If it doesn't cling, there's no dukkha. The second insight is the insight into dukkha. Remember what I said dukkha meant? Pain, insecurity, vulnerability, oppression. When the understanding of the dukkha characteristic of phenomena arises in the mind, it is as if we see every moment whatever has arisen has this quality of dukkha. It is either painful why would we hold on to that? Or it's unstable and insecure, changing moment to moment. How could we hold on to that? Or it is oppressive. It's just incessant. Why would we hold on to that? When we see this characteristic, when we understand, it's not that we see it like with mindfulness, but we understand it with wisdom. We understand this is the characteristic of every phenomena. Again, the mind doesn't have to let go because it hasn't reached for and held anything that it sees this characteristic of. And so again, the mind is resting in this knowledge, this insight knowledge of the unsatisfactoriness of phenomena. Now, sometimes people think, oh, if everything's unsatisfactory, life's miserable. No. Life goes by. Everything that you experience still happens. You just see it, you see it, you see it, you see it. But you're not fooled by it. You understand this is or has the characteristic of dukkha. Don't hang on. And if there's no clinging, there's no dukkha. The third insight, or the third Vipassana knowledge, is what's called the anatta characteristic. Understanding the anatta characteristic. It means understanding the conditional nature of things. Stuff happens due to other stuff happening. Things come together because of causes and conditions. But there really isn't anything inherently stable and existing in this appearance. It's like a rainbow. You know, I don't, well, we're not going to see any rainbows here this week, but we've all seen rainbows. 
and you know, rainbow is a beautiful appearance in the sky. And it's wonderful. But it is due to very specific conditions. Moisture in the air, sunlight viewed at a certain angle reveals a rainbow. But there's no substance to that rainbow. There's no thing there. You can't package it up and send it to me in Hawaii. It's an appearance that is noticeable, but it has no inherent substance. It is conditioned. Well, when the anatta, when the knowledge of the anatta characteristic arises in our mind, this is what we see. Everything that appears in our mind is just an appearance. It's a colorful appearance due to causes and conditions, but it has no inherent substance and entity and tangibility that we can hold on to. And just as we would never really think to reach for and ho try to hold on to a rainbow, neither does the mind that understands the anatta characteristic reach for and try to hold on to anything that it sees is just an appearance due to conditions. And so the mind that's not reaching, the mind that's not clinging, is the mind that's resting in a dukkha-free zone. These insights come. This knowledge, these knowledges of impermanence, of dukkha, of the anatta characteristic or the conditionality, this, these understandings arise quite spontaneously from just paying attention, as we do here. We're just paying attention, noticing what's going on moment by moment. In time, we get it. We get these understandings. And when we do, the clinging of the mind, the mind doesn't cling to anything. It doesn't reach, it doesn't cling. It, it, life goes on. Life is full. Everything is experienced. Nothing, nothing is different except no suffering. It is at this point of practice that what the Buddha was pointing to as the, let's say, ultimate dukkha-free zone can be realized. The Buddha was pointing to and talking about Nibbana. Nibbana is the unconditioned. It is knowledge of the unconditioned. When the mind is equanimous, not reacting to anything, but deeply understanding the three characteristics of its impermanence, its unsatisfactoriness, its conditionality. When the mind can rest in this knowledge in an ongoing way, not reacting to anything, the mind can realize, or we say sometimes, the mind can fall into the unconditioned. The unconditioned is Nibbana. Nibbana is not physical, it's not a colorful, it's got no size, no shape, no. It is the end of dukkha. Its characteristic is peace. It is a reality to be realized. The Buddha said of, of Nibbana that it is deep, hard to see, hard to understand. It is peaceful, it is sublime and it is intelligible to the wise. It's not only for monks and nuns at the time of the Buddha. It's not only for contemporary uh, renunciates living in caves or monasteries in some far-off mountainous region. It is for we here in this room to come to these understanding, to see these insights, and to realize for ourselves the unconditioned. It is possible if you practice.
peace is the characteristic of Nibbana. But it must be realized by each one of us for ourselves. And how do we do that? The Buddha spoke of the Fourth Noble Truth as the path to be developed to realize the end of suffering. To realize Nibbana is the Noble Eightfold Path. Now the Noble Eightfold Path is really three trainings. It is the training in ethical conduct, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And for us here on this retreat, it's practicing the five precepts. When we practice the five precepts, we purify our speech and behavior of the defilements. And it gives us the opportunity to experience the happiness of living in harmony with one another, because we're not harming each other. We can feel safe with each other. But even though we're not harming each other, our minds can still be pretty obsessive and cause ourselves lots of torment. And so the Buddha offered a second training in the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the training in the development of samadhi, or concentration, through right effort, right mindfulness or awareness, and right concentration. As we develop mindfulness here, we figure out, at times, right effort, right mindfulness, and in time, the continuity of the mindfulness results in right concentration. Right concentration is the experience, or the ongoing experience, of the purified mind, where the mind is temporarily purified of the defilements. This gives us the experience of seclusion, tranquility, uh, a, sub, a more sublime happiness than living in harmony. It's the happiness of tranquility. But because conditions change, the Buddha offered a third training in the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the training in the development of wisdom. Right view, right thought, or right intention. And this we're practicing here by developing insight, by looking carefully at the way everything arises and passes away. We begin to see impermanence. By investigating the first noble truth of dukkha, we begin to understand dukkha. And by seeing the, well, conditional nature of everything, we begin to understand the anatta characteristic. Through the practice of insight, we develop the understanding that prepares the mind for the unconditioned. Insight purifies our understanding. Precepts purify our speech and behavior. Concentration purifies our mind. But it's insight that purifies our understanding. And it is these three trainings of the Noble Eightfold Path that result in the uprooting and the overcoming of dukkha in life. Why did the Buddha teach the Four Noble Truths? Because he said it's beneficial. It belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life. The Four Noble Truths lead to disenchantment, lead to dispassion, leads to cessation, leads to peace. It leads to direct knowledge, to enlightenment and Nibbana. This path is to be developed by each one of us. And when developed, results in the realization of the Third Noble Truth, the end of suffering. By abandoning the Second Noble Truth of craving, 
end up rooting the first noble truth of dukkha from the mind. So let's sit and let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.